by two married to each other ladies where we break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of the wilds my name is rachel and as always i'm joined by my wife and the love of my life Allie. hi everyone Allie, what episode are we talking about today Today we're talking about Season 2, Episode 4, which covers Day 42 slash 15 on the island. As always, I'll start us off with a spoiler language and content warning. Spoiler-wise, we're a spoiler-friendly podcast, and so we will talk about things from across the season. Most of our discussions will be specifically about Episode 4, but we may talk about elements of things that are happening in later episodes. So if you have not finished the season, we might spoil it for you. Around language, um, The Wilds is a show that uses explicit language. So do we. We will swear likely in this, just as a bit of a heads up. And content-wise, The Wilds is a show that deals with a lot of mature subject matter. And in particular, this episode, uh, there'll be discussions from us around homophobia, around suicide. And then also, this is the episode where there's going to be discussions around sexual assault. I know this is a really tough episode for people, especially around the sexual assault piece, so I will put in the episode description the start time and end time of that particular discussion. So if you want to skip it, go for it. Please do. Uh, And please take care in this episode too. So as always, the structure of our episode is that we start going arc by arc through the major things that happen in the episode. So we're going to start again on the girls' island. Then we'll head into the boys' island, and then we'll end with a discussion about the experiment and a return of Susan's Corner. After we do the arc-by-arc summary, we'll have some opportunity to discuss our overall thoughts and reflections. Then we'll head into Quote of the Week, and we'll finish up on Deserted Island Partner of the Week. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into it. So this episode opens up with Fatten sitting on a rock counting the days. She's talking about it with Dot, and through this process, they realize it's Dot's birthday. Dot is turning 18 years old. I mean, to be fattened, if I wanted to in this moment, I should say it's Dot's motherfucking birthday. Woo! Just to be clear. Dot asks Fatten to keep it quiet. Uh, Fatten does not follow that request and immediately tells the girls and starts kind of leading them into a bit of a party planning process. Process, yeah. Shelby, who's still feeling guilty for, you know, not flagging down the boat at the end of last episode, kind of takes over this and and says to the girls, we need to make this really big. It needs to be like the biggest party ever. What that leads to is the girls dividing into different duos and trios and doing some party planning throughout the day. First of all, it is officially cancer season and Dot's a cancer. So shout out to all of my cancer pals, my best friends a cancer, mad respect. Next thing, something I found fascinating about Fatten counting the days is she places herself with what she'd be doing if she was at home. She talks about how she'd be getting a wax because her family is about to go to Spain. This is the week that they tend to vacation in Spain. And I found it really interesting and fascinating and also odd because in season one, she planned Mm -hmm. to move and stole all those watches. So I don't know. What do you make of that, honey? Yeah, it's interesting because she wouldn't be home if she was back there. And I don't know if it's just that her previous life is just like a little bit more tangible for her to remember. I think maybe that's it. Because we've seen Fatten kind of do this connection back home. If you think back to season one when they're all standing in the water. It's like the Horbath scene. But remember Fatten has her phone and she's just kind of scrolling on it. Like she's not actually scrolling on it. But it's, it's like these things, whether it's counting and thinking about what she's doing or scrolling on her phone, 
connect her back to home. And maybe that's something that I wish we could have explored more because I wonder if Batten is scared of losing that sense of home or if she needs that sense of home to really root her in this space. It's kind of interesting too, because like her ties to home are so different than Shelby's. We talked about Shelby last episode and uh, the way that she's tying home to this island, to this moment in time, to this very specific place. But for Fatten, she's still thinking about home as this thing that she wants to work back to. And I don't know, there's a cool element of like forgiveness in there too for Fatten that I'm hoping we get to see her explore because... She is there because of what happened with her parents, but even the act of saying she would want to be back with them, I feel like is a huge step for her. No, I totally agree. And I'd love to, maybe this could be a special episode, two analyses I really want to do of season one and two. One, all about home and conceptions of home and understandings of home and references to home. Of course, including Edward Sharp and Magnetic Zero's home scene of last episode. And two... We didn't touch on it enough, I think, in the last episode, the discussion around monsters. And monsters is a huge theme. And we talked about that, I think, in episode one or maybe the trailer episode. So that's another analysis that I just want to put on the floor for consideration. Sophia's face, like what she does with like for Fatten's character when she figures out it's Dot's birthday is just so funny. Just like the level of like excitement and shock And it feels so special knowing the way that Dot and Fatten have really built this really close relationship that Fatten would be so excited for this spotlight for Dot, for this moment for Dot, and to want to bring sort of light to Dot's birthday that, you know, Dot brings to them on a day-to-day basis. And more than that, too, we see Fatten attend other parties in season one. And in fact, she leaves one of them because she says it's like a full of a bunch of D-listers. So some could argue that the island girls might be considered D-listers in Fatten's previous world, but the fact that she wants to have a party for Dot, even though she has high party expectations, I think is just a beautiful way to show that love and honor Dot in that way. It's also really cute when she goes and talks to the girls about it. I mean, her list of things that Dot can now do is hilarious. Um, She says that Dot can now vote. She can buy porn. She's no longer a sexual interest to Jeffrey Galanis, which Leah's kind of like, why would you? Why would you say that? Um, But it's really overshadowed in that moment by Shelby's guilt and her desire to kind of fix things. And so it's kind of like a weird, interesting tension because like Fatten is sort of the ignition switch for this entire birthday. But Shelby's really the one who takes over and takes over a leadership role. And on the one hand, Shelby is the right person to do it. And I think Dot validates that later on when she really recognizes that Shelby played a role in it. So I think it's a role that Shelby would step into regardless. But I feel like the way in which she's so kind of over the top about it, I'm actually really surprised the girls didn't notice that something was going on with her. It reminds me of after her homophobia incident with the Muscle Beach Day, we learn that she's the one that's doing everything around the camp and they blame her when that huge storm comes in and Dot is the one that kind of says, you know, you've all been kind of being too lackadaisical because Shelby's been doing everything and I'm really surprised they didn't pick up on her being so over the top and might be feeling guilty about something. Even more than that, if you think about in episode eight when Shelby's not doing well, that's Shelby's episode. And that's when she's kind of like drinking by herself. And she kind of like 
we always call it ocean party day but like she arranges like the games for them but like no one really sees how bad she's doing I mean Tony does a little bit and probably is the only person who does Dot does go over and kind of talk to her but more in the sense of Dot tells her she needs to pull it together or people are going to realize and so this is I guess now the third instance of Shelby not being okay but people not seeing or recognizing that she's not okay. And I think it goes back to broader narratives we've talked about this season about who needs care and who gets care. So Shelby probably needs some care in this moment. And of course there's guilt too, but she doesn't get that opportunity or that space. And that is part her coping mechanism. She just like kind of throws herself into however she can channel her energy and her guilt. But on the other hand, it is a miss from the girls to not really see that in her. And of course, there's lots of other things going on. But again, it's um, you don't see that same moment with Dot and Shelby as you do in episode eight. And more than that, you see Shelby providing care at the end to Rachel. Well, they often take Shelby at face value. So similarly, if we're thinking about season one, episode eight, you know, something's clearly going on with her. But the second she cracks a joke or says, I'm going to do what I do best and arrange some camp games for you. Everyone's like, okay, this is just, this is just Shelby. So it's interesting because she's able in that space to kind of put up a front and no one really sees through it. Which on the other hand, you know, we've seen with people like Leah and Fatten see them see through kind of that front or see kind of what's underneath and I feel like that's sort of like a big thing that we're thinking about this season especially when we think about Martha and so Martha very similarly isn't doing well but because she goes through the motions and does the things and doesn't act as maybe loud when she's not doing well as Leah does right they don't necessarily see it in the same way similarly you have that moment with Rachel later this episode where Rachel's talking about the cake and Shelby gets excited and I know we're going to talk about it after and then Rachel kind of snaps out that like not everything's okay. It's this weird thing with the group sometimes where if like you aren't visibly not doing well, people don't always notice that you're not doing well. And I think it goes back to they are still strangers in some ways. So 42 days, that's six weeks. You can learn a lot about someone in six weeks, 24 hours a day with each other in a survival situation. Haven't been in it, but could only imagine. And so I think they're just, they're still learning about each other and... They're just still learning about each other, really. And I think that that's a fair assessment too. And it's fair in thinking about the ways that they still have to grow even across this season, because in a lot of ways, I feel like we're like, they're it, like they're so close, but there is still sort of like tension points or pull points or growth points that are still happening with this group. I think that's the challenge is that in season one, we met these girls as stereotypes and then we sent the whole season peeling back these layers. But to some extent, because of the less screen time in season two, it feels like we've recategorized and re-stereotyped the girls. And you see that in the way sometimes that they interact, where they're not always catching everything in the way that they could have or maybe should have. And so that could just be a fault with season two in general. But I do think that they might be just at a crossroads in their journey of coming to know and understand each other, where they've almost recategorized themselves into their own like character stereotypes. As a group, not just in the writing, but like in the actual like girls functioning of the group. Mm -hmm. I think too, Shelby's guilt really is centered in the scene around missing the boat. But I think it goes a little bit deeper than just missing the boat. Fatten specifically is like, like, what's wrong with you? You're acting like you're, I don't know, like a stepdad or something who feels guilty over missing 
the last five years of his kid's life or something. I, I don't have the direct quote written down, but that's kind of what she says to Shelby. And Shelby snaps a little bit at it. And I feel like it, like it is about missing the boat and about Dot now having to spend this sort of milestone birthday on the island and Shelby wanting to make it as good as possible. But I also wonder if in part it's about missing Dot's life. Shelby and Dot were childhood friends who drifted apart, who have now reconnected and rebuilt something in this very intense situation. And I wonder if there's something deep in her that's also thinking about all the other birthdays of Dot's that she missed. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think these two, and we talked about this in the duo episode as well last season, but they have a shared pain that like they both possess that they didn't know about until here. And I really like, this was my quote of the week last week from Shelby. This is like the most perfect moment of my life. And I really like that quote contrasted with our episode title and a dot quote, this is the best birthday that I've ever had. Cause those two statements really talk about how this is the best part of their lives. And I think really drill down that they could have been there for each other better before the island. That's beautiful. And I think they do work really well together. And I think that Dot and Shelby are people who, if we do end up flashing forward in future seasons, I'm excited to see what that looks like for them and the ways that they continue to support each other because they fell in pretty fast. Like if you think back to early season one and really started to work to rebuild that and in a lot of ways, like Shelby's really the only person who we know that knows about Dot's dad and who at least that Dot has like had an open conversation about her dad with. And I think like some of those things are important for like Dot's healing journey too, as she's kind of processing. And we didn't really get to see her work through that this season. And I'm hoping in future seasons she will. I'm also hoping that Shelby will be like a catalyst or a supporter or someone who will hold Dot through those moments. And I'll talk about this in my overall thoughts and reflections, but justice for Dot. Yeah. Dot got the short end of the sec all season. She did, for sure. Period. Do you think that there's a reason that Dot is turning 18 now? Like in the grander scheme of Gretchen's plan? Some sort of legal cover thing, yeah. a la Jeanette? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she wouldn't have known that Jeanette was going to die. But is, like, is there a reason that Dot, who we know Gretchen, was the only person Gretchen spoke to in person that Dot is the person with a birthday so close to when they were on the island. Yeah, this actually reminds me of a theory that someone wrote to us about, so shout out to Regan for sharing this with us. But they were talking about how Dot's dad might have known about the whole thing from the start and used the retreat as an opportunity for Dot to prove themselves mm. and linked it back to the bonding on a survival TV show and knew that she could do it and wanted to give her that experience. And when I reflected on it, I loved it, super dark. But when I wrote back to them, I thought of a couple of things that really reinforced that theory. So one, in Dot's discussion with Gretchen, she mentions keeping Child Protective Services off her back until she's 18. And we know that to be true now. And that would have been something really fail-safe for her dad to latch onto, knowing she would have been out in the wild. Well, well, CPS can't come get her when she's lost on an island. Absolutely. So Gretchen would have kept her safe because she wanted her to go on that trip. It's a pretty fail-safe option. Second piece is that Dot mentions that she gets paid for going on this retreat. And Does again, she? yes. 
She oh. says, you're going to pay me to go on this thing and you're going to keep Child Protective Services off my back. You verified that? Yes. Oh, shit. And again, I think that's another fail-safe thing for Tim, knowing that she'll have some income from this. That's weird that she would be... I didn't even catch that, but that's weird because no one else is being paid. Uh-huh. No way they are. So this is... The Tim theory is a good one, I think. Ooh. And then lastly, this is just to reinforce the Tim theory. When Tim talks to Dot about the retreat, he only mentions snorkeling, swimming, and the works. Doesn't mention goat yoga. So he never really lies to her. There's definitely swimming and snorkeling and the works. Anyways, those are just a a couple of the points that we talked about. But I do think there's merit or something to at least one of the girls turning or being 18 on the island. Well, I kind of want to go back and take a look. Um, The Wilds release sort of everyone's signs. I just remember I was really mad because none of them were Sagittarius. And I was like, fuck this. Uh, oh, except for um, Ian. But uh, I kind of want to go back and check about it because I wonder if there's something in there about if Dot's the only person who's going to turn 18 during the experiment, then there's not parental permission to send her on this. And so if that's where compensation comes in. I'd have to look at it to kind of see, like especially knowing now that it was 50 days and we can kind of count around the day 18 And then also, but I mean, I guess it's going to be dependent on how long this phase three is and whether phase three was planned or not. And if it's not, and Gretchen's just saying, fuck it. I guess just one other thing about this like girl setup period is we have another instance of Shelby kind of doing some cultural appropriation stuff. It's not, there's a, there's a worse instance later on in this season that I'll talk about when we get to it that happens on the boys island. I'm more mad about that than I am about this. It's a weird episode because there's two references to cultural appropriation. So Tony's line and then later on when Leah and Roth are talking about the conversation between Roth and Josh. Mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't make it weird. It's just, it's mentioned a couple of times. So it is a weird thing though that they touch on a bunch of times on the island, but they never, on the island, that they touch on a bunch of times throughout the show, but they never really dig into. So, you know, we had that version in uh, season one, episode one, where Shelby says that they're going to have a powwow. And and then we have like this instance, and then you're right, the one with Roth and Josh. But it's one of those things where they like call it out, but they never really take it anywhere in the same way that maybe they do with conversations around racism and homophobia. And so something where that I'm like, Cultural appropriation often is rooted in racism, though, just like a different form of it. And so it's it's weird that they keep putting references in, calling it out, and then never taking it anywhere. No, for sure. And I think we'll save our conversation around appropriation for the time that they do it, but don't mention it or don't call it out later this season. But just to say that we are also recording this on National Indigenous Peoples Day. We are. So wishing you and you, you and Ali. Me, me personally. <laughs> a happy National Indigenous Peoples Day. And this will release after that. But really encouraging you all, if you're listening to this podcast, to think about the land that you're on, to read up on the history of Indigenous folks in whatever territory you're in, and learn about things that you can hopefully do a little bit better at and yourselves, your friend groups and your community and encourage you to, when you're confronted with words like powwow or this is my tribe, to think back to all the things that powerful, indigenous, incredible people like my wife, Allie, have taught you and stand up and push back and encourage people to challenge it. Oh, you're so cute. Off my soapbox. (laughs) Off my soapbox. 
As I'd already mentioned, the girls kind of split off into a bunch of different groups. Uh, one of them is, I, I mean, a group of one of Rachel, but she does do some interaction with Shelby. So I'm going to make it a, a Rachel Shelby group, although Shelby does kind of bounce around and interact with a bunch of different people. We see Rachel alone on the beach building a sand cake. It's beautiful, multi-tier. She's like put shells carefully. I can just imagine Rachel going around and collecting all shells that are the same size to use as decoration around that cake. We also see her take a quiet moment with the water where she's staring out at the ocean. I'm always super aware when Rachel's on the beach, especially when she's on the beach with herself, knowing that like that is such a space of trauma for her with what happened with Nora. And so I think it's always helpful to really like think about what her headspace would be anytime she's back there. We see Rachel come back to tell Shelby about the cake, to kind of talk about what she built. She's really proud of herself. And Shelby kind of thanks her for helping her specifically. So Shelby's like, thank you for helping me. And then kind of starts talking about how wonderful the party will be and all of these different pieces. And Rachel snaps a little bit and says, you know, this island isn't that great of a place. Don't be so poetic about it. Um, and Shelby immediately moves into that uh, apologetic kind of thing that she does quite often. And Rachel sort of backs down and backs away from it. I want to talk about Rachel showing Dot love. Rachel and Dot are two characters that we don't actually see interact all that often relative to some of the other duos. But we see Rachel hear and show Dot love a couple of times in this episode. Even when they're talking about the surprise party, she says back to the group, she hates surprises, end quote, which really demonstrates that she's listening to Dot and knows Dot better than I think we give her credit for. And two, I know that Rachel is like throwing herself into things and we saw a lot of that last episode, but that sandcastle cake is a fucking work of art. And she talks about all the other innovations that she's brought to the beach in terms of rigging up a little limbo game and setting up the torches and again, that sandcastle cake. And so I just wanted to shout out that love between the two of them, even though we don't see that duo have a journey in some way that we see some of the other duos. I found the limbo piece really interesting because it's such a different game to kind of rig up. And it makes me wonder if like that was something that was a part of Rachel and Nora's birthday parties when they were a kid. And so I really liked that touch. And I definitely went with that it was a callback or some sort of an homage to her childhood with Nora. Rachel is continuing that doing piece that her and Leah have been working on where she's doing something. She basically goes and sets up the beach by herself. Although the return to the beach was clearly hard for her. It's one of those moments when I worry that the rest of the girls don't always give like the care to Nora being missing. Because Nora's both like everywhere but nowhere. And so we're either really in our feels about Nora or it's like Nora's was never there. And I think that must be really hard for Rachel to kind of deal with. Even the concept of throwing the party on the beach, acknowledging that there's been two deaths there is kind of a dark thing to sort of do. And so I feel like too in that moment, was it feeling like Shelby was forgetting Nora? Well, I want to call back to two other beach scenes to make some parallels. Of course, later in this episode, we have the Shelby and Rachel beach scene, which talks about faith. But I do want to say that the beach is also a safe place for Rachel. So yeah. we see her really struggle with being in and out of the water, both a place of joy and achievement, but also, you know, she made the girl sick and then she said she was out on the water. And so we've seen her really struggle with that in part because of her diving career and now because of Nora. 
But it's also the place where Rachel in her episode says that all that she feels is Nora's hand holding hers forever. And that's a beach scene. Mm -hmm. And in that beach scene, it's also the one where Rachel is given the space to be herself because they have that conversation about how Stanford is no longer Rachel's dream. And so I just want to mention, and we're thinking about the beach, that we also need to see the other side of it. It has a place of strength for Rachel. And the other thing I want to call back to is the Shelby and Leah beach scene. And there's a quote that Leah says to Shelby that I think is in part what Shelby is going through. Leah says to Shelby, For 16 actual days, death has been hanging over us. And the only thing I give a shit about is love. Shelby's going through the same thing, in my opinion. Death still is hanging over them, but all she's really caring about is her happiness and the sense of home she feels because she's surrounded by love, real love, for the kind of first time in her whole life. I like that. I like, too, that kind of balance constantly between, like, love and death or the way that death it kind of is there, but they're also trying to sort of, like, work through it or work past it. Something that I wanted to pull from this scene, too, is... Like the decorating of the cake with the shells felt very reminiscent to when they decorated Jeanette's grave or Lynn's Mm. grave. And so it's that kind of like weird balance where the last time they decorated something with shells, it was a funeral. But now they're decorating something with shells as sort of like a celebration of life or of Dot's birthday, right? And so there is a tension between the two as like binary concepts, like in the way that like they weigh and harm, but also uplift. I also like, um, I'm, I'm jumping us back a little bit, but what you said about Rachel doing this for Dot, I had wrote down in my notes, who is she doing this for? It was like very reminiscent back of like to Roth's episode. And I had written down herself and Dot who showed her kindness because mm. Dot showed her that beautiful moment in episode one where she said that she would always be with her and she helped her like move camps. And there's like a toughness and a practicality about both Rachel and Dot that I think they recognize and see in each other, but also a softness. And so I think we often don't think about the ways that like Rachel and Dot are so similar, but they really are in a lot of ways. And so it's beautiful to see them kind of call out and recognize that in each other. Also, she built a sandcastle cake with one hand. What a fucking hard task. But I think that just goes back to Rachel. It doesn't matter what she's doing. She's always going to achieve. She's always going to push herself. And she's always going to go the extra mile. The fact that she had Dot to do it for just only further cements that. It's just who she is. And of course it was going to be the best sandcastle cake anyone has ever made. She drew a diagram. It was so cute. It's very... She's channel, she channels Nora, Nora a bunch. Yeah, this season. And it's beautiful. And it's a really good callback to when Nora designs the lean-to in the shelter building competition. Oh, that is, you're right. I think the last bit that I want to discuss with this is just Shelby's panic. And I think in that moment, Shelby's really centering herself. And so when Rachel freaks out, once again, it's this thing where it's like they forget that Rachel's going through the loss of her twin sometimes, and then it almost shocks them. But I think like also where that's coming from for her is she's throwing this party, yes, for Dot, but also to make herself feel better for what for the guilt that she's carrying but I think like in that moment she's recognizing how she could be doing this to make herself feel better and doing this to commemorate Dot but still be harming Rachel in that moment and so it's like an interesting kind of realization for her to come to we also have another group of girls which is comprised mostly of Martha and Tony but Shelby comes into it a little bit too once again Shelby's just bouncing around groups 
Martha and Tony are working on making a flower crown for Dot's birthday. Shelby comes over and they show her their attempt at a crown. Shelby basically says that it's not good enough and they need to try again. Thinking a little bit from this more of the perspective of like Martha and Tony, instead of Tony getting mad at Shelby saying like your flower crown is trash, which is actually kind of what she says. Tony sort of like agrees. Martha's pretty shocked in that moment and asks if Tony's a clone, kind of questions like and recognizes the way that this reaction from Tony is very different than one we would have seen um, from her previously or even back in season one, where someone telling her that what she was doing was dumb would have really set her off. Tony sort of shares that Shelby makes her feel safe um, and she kind of understands where it's coming from with Shelby and she doesn't take it personally. She's not like taking it to the heart when this happens. And Martha says that she's happy for her. Yeah, and I think this was a nice scene because we've talked a lot about the tension that exists between that trio. So it was nice to see them in a bit of a lighthearted moment with a different dynamic with Shelby being the one who's coming in externally and kind of ripping them both to shreds. And she does leverage her relationship with Tony to provide the feedback about how you know my taste better, but it's a lighter side of their duo and trio. And we get that moment from Martha where she really validates their relationship and the positive changes from her perspective that it's brought Tony as well. Yeah, I think it's really easy to come at season two with the perspective of Tony feeling a little bit out of character or feel like she's acting a little bit out of the norm, especially of the Tony that we sort of built and understood in season one. But I think what's really important about the season is they talk about it. Martha in particular talks about how different Tony is and gives us this pathway to understand that Tony can grow and change in this space, which I think is like a really sort of important element because Martha calls it, but she also validates it. I think Tony's line in here where her relationship with Shelby, there's no hiding, there's no secrets, and it makes her feel really safe. It's interesting that she's saying this to Martha because I do kind of question if Martha's ever felt safe. If you think sort of about the trajectory of Martha's life, especially like since her trampoline accident and then everything that happened with Dr. Ted afterwards and like, you know, this this sort of like rapidly increasing spiral that her life has kind of been like, does she actually know what that feels like or know what that is like? But I think like it's important for Tony to have that feeling because Tony's someone who always wants to know where she stands with someone. And Shelby does give her that. Shelby can be open and honest about a lot of things. Obviously, she's hiding a secret right now about this boat thing. But I think Shelby's always very upfront with Tony about her feelings. And I think that that's a really important thing that comes from Shelby's history and things that Shelby's learned. And so there's no guessing around that. It's just very straightforward. Yeah, and I would make the broader argument of have any of the girls ever felt safe? Yeah. Right? If you think about all of their lives and trajectories. So certainly Martha definitely has struggled with that, I'm, I'm sure. But I think... It's something that they've all probably shared. And I think people really would root for Tony because her struggle to get safety is so apparent and it's so central to her character. But I think if we peel back the layers, I don't think any of the girls have ever really felt like safe and comfortable with themselves or in a relationship with a partner. Well, it's interesting too with like the speech that Tony gives in her episode in season one about how people always leave you and like everything changes and you don't have that stability because I really associate safety with stability. And so I think in some ways Tony does too. Maybe I'm just projecting, but I, in some ways I, <laughs> in some ways I think Tony does too. 
So it's interesting to know that thinking about the path that sort of her and Shelby's relationship takes throughout this season. Flipping over to Leah, Fatten, and Dot, Shelby had told Leah and Fatten to distract Dot no matter what. It's like one of my favorite moments of this episode because like they're like, but how? And Shelby's like, I delegate that you figure it out. Like just fucking figure it out. Two people who like really <laughs> aren't like the people to delegate things to, especially like with Dot either. Yeah, they, yeah, it's, uh, it's very funny. They, like, accost her in the woods and tell her that she can't go back to camp with some, like, very flimsy excuses. Like, Leah gives, like, is a bad liar and tries to give way too much information. Fatten's over there being, like, keep it simple. It's, it's like a weird scene of, like, joy, but also you're just like, Jesus Christ, this is a fucking shit show. Well, and I will say, Leah is a fucking queen because she's a horrible liar in this situation. Meanwhile, on the experiment side of things, oh, yeah. she's rigged up this elaborate scheme. So we'll give some credit where credit's due. Yeah. Not so good at lying on the fly, but if she feels passionately about it, she's got it. Also, Dot's just dragging a fucking log through the woods. No one's fucking helping her. Like, it's a, like it is a full, like, fallen tree that she is just dragging through the fucking woods. And she doesn't even have an intention for it. She's like, ah, might be a new crossbeam, maybe some seeding. Just yeah. gonna bring it back. She just found it and she was like, ah, this might be useful. I'm gonna drag it. This seems like the right size log we needed at camp. I just, like, all that like, I felt in this scene was just like, I want to hang out with this trio. Like these are these are these are the three people that I would like to hang out with. It's kind of like a dream team in a very shit show. In a niche way, it's a dream team. <laughs> in a niche way, it is a dream team. I like that Leah's spelling has come back mm. so that she's not a good speller. The field note actually says that she is a good speller, but in season one, episode six, her second episode, when she's writing in her journal, she makes like a really egregious error. It might not actually be in episode six, but it's when Nora loans her the journal and she starts writing what she's seeing and she spells something horribly wrong, even though it's I think not it's a suspicious, situation. isn't it? Is it the word suspicious she spells wrong? I don't wrong? know. No, it's I like, a, I think it's a five letter word, but I can't remember what it's five. five well, I think it's supposed to be a six letter word, but she uses five letters instead. This all happens kind of off the screen, but we assume that Leah and Fatten very badly distract Dot for the majority of the day, but they do eventually bring her to the party that evening. Dot immediately thanks Shelby and says she knows that she kind of planned it. The party is beautiful. There's limbo. They have sparklers. There's a pinata. They do some dancing. It's the second sort of like fun, lovely group scene that we've gotten, which is nice and needed as obviously the, the first one was home. We slowly see scenes of them having this lovely time interspersed with pieces of Rachel not doing well. That's kind of like a, a weird building feeling that you get throughout the episode. We also get this moment where Dot says it's her best birthday and they start sharing a little bit about what everyone's best birthday was. And that's when Rachel kind of snaps. So that build up that you sort of see, uh, you see it all kind of come to a head. Dot stands up and says she's going to go and try and help. But uh, they all tell her she's retired and instead Shelby goes. First and foremost, Dot's outfit and this scene is this year's fattened suitcase this will be my halloween costume retired sash flower crown october 31 watch out okay the other thing i want to talk about is martha in this scene but also when they're doing the party prep 
In the party prep scene, she talks about how Dot might rather be doing laser tag and eating at a hibachi restaurant. And then she describes how her best birthday is when Tony snuck them into a casino so they could see Penn and Teller. Couple of comments. Number one, I fucking love Penn and Teller. I love magic. I watch magic for humans before I go to bed some nights of the week. And I also watch Penn and Teller some nights before I go to bed. I know you were really vibing with Martha in this scene. (laughs) Yeah, I like magic. I know. But I really like the laser tag hibachi reference and the sneaking into casino to watch magic because it almost reminds me of the what they're going to eat when they get back home conversation. Oh, yeah. It really highlights the strength that they all have and the strength and difference that they all have. Martha says the laser tag and hibachi as though that's like a shared birthday experience that every teenage girl would want to go to laser tag and hibachi laser tag followed by hibachi like it's a very specific instance which like i would love that of course but i don't know if like to what extent all the other girls that would be their ideal choice so i just really like that as a callback and it really talks about the strength and difference of the girls that they all possess with those specific references particularly to martha's birthday also the very performative Shelby reference to her best birthday where they rented a car and it was Great Gatsby themed and then they had this super Christian person send a video or something. That was also very weird. (laughs) It was weird. It was a weird thing. It was a weird, it was very Shelby, but it was a weird piece. Uh, Rachel, if we're talking, yeah, Rachel, you, if we're talking about Martha and her, you know, very specific hibachi laser tag experience, what is your normal favorite way to spend your birthday? What's your like classic go-to birthday combination? Well, Allie, I like to do an activity. Yes. Like axe throwing. I say like, yes, like I don't know the answer to this, but I'm like, yeah, like like axe throwing. Like axe throwing. Like bouldering. We went bouldering We went bouldering. Mm -hmm. I like to do one activity. And then I like to go to a brewery and drink flights. Mm -hmm. And then I like to go for a very, very nice dinner. Allie, what do you like to do? Should I ask you or should I tell you? You can tell me what I like to do. I do the same thing every year on my birthday. Also, I think I really hope that this will resonate with people because to me, it's a bit dark what Allie likes to do, (laughs) but I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Allie likes to go to the aquarium. Yes. And then she likes to go for sushi. (laughs) See fish, eat fish. So, Which is a joke that I've made many times before. Yes. Usually we try to get a brewery in there too because we both like going to breweries. But it's the aquarium followed by the sushi that Allie really, really likes. That's what I like to do on my birthday. Yeah. Thanks for doing that uh, that segue with me. Other favorite pulls of mine from this scene. Uh, obviously they don't have helium. So they've just blown up the balloons and attached them with sticks around different areas of the perimeter. Um, there's this great moment where Leah's standing on a rock holding the pinata stick, and it's hilarious. Uh, Leah kills it at Limbo. She's, like, really good at Limbo. And, yeah, it's just, I don't know. There's just, I love it when we do these sort of, like, group kind of party scenes because every time you watch it, you notice something different. And so there's, like, a lot of fun layers when, like, the girls are all allowed to be their character in that space. Yeah, one of my favorite ones that Allie noticed relatively recently in the beach party scene is how they mimic finding the plane. So they replay the scene. <laughs> Sorry. So 
if you if you would like a some real delight, go back to the beach party scene and watch them all like point at the sky like there's a plane in the air again. It's really really funny. It is really funny. I didn't I didn't notice it until this is probably I don't know. I've probably seen this episode like five or six times at this point, and I didn't notice it until recently. And God, it killed me. We've already touched on this, but I think for me too, this being Dot's best birthday hurts. It like hits you right in the chest. Uh, that specifically is where our episode title comes from. So our episode title for this episode is This is the Best Birthday That I've Ever Had. And that's, uh, I mean, we picked it because I think it's Dot's birthday and we both really wanted like a Dot-centric quote for this episode. I, at least that's what we were looking at the list that was in my head. There's like beauty and like pain in it. There's like beauty in it because it's this like moment where Dot actually can leisure. She can relax. She has a little bit of a break from the like, crushing responsibilities that she has in the regular world but it's also a little bit painful because like her stranded on a deserted island is the best birthday that she's ever had so you think about the other 17 and like it also just reminds me that tim's not there with her and that she doesn't have her her dad and i don't know i have a lot of feels about it yeah i think it's also a good reminder that she is a very three-dimensional character because when she first said that i thought well that's interesting because you'd think that she would kind of latch on to her last birthday or one of her birthdays when her dad was there where they did something really special. And I'm sure those are also really special birthdays, but I think it just also reminds you in that moment that she's more than that grief and more than that relationship. It's still a huge part of her. Don't let me undermine it. But to say that some of the comments she makes about being a lone wolf in her episode are things that she might've really struggled with that we don't hear about in her episode but when she says quotes like this we really see it so that fact that she now has these people surrounded by her and she feels like it's kind of her best birthday in that regard I think just reminds us that she's a really three-dimensional character yeah and I, I think there's a lot of ways that Dot hasn't even figured out what she wants when we think about them saying well like you're retired now I wonder if Dot actually feels left out and if she feels like she's getting left out of the things that are happening mm. You kind of see it a little bit through this season where the girls will be having something happen with the group and Dot's like on the beach reading because she's like so focused on this like letting go of some of that weight that I, I just don't think that, you know, Dot, and maybe this is a great comparison between Dot and Roth, two characters who maybe like just don't really know what they want or where they're going and are, are going to figure it out. They're definitely going to figure it out, but are still working towards figuring it out. Yeah, and I think that's a really good comparison because both of their identities are so tied into other people or other roles that they've held. And so the island really strips that away from them. And so they both are in that place where they're evaluating not only what's left, but who do they want to be. And especially with Dot, she really hears Tim's voice in her head talking about someday the big bright world's going to come for you and you have to be ready. So I think for her, there's that real extra push um, and perhaps for Roth too, when Marisol asks him what his thing's going to be, he might feel that same push too. Before we talk about Rachel, I just want to talk, I, we we, I, we touched on it a little bit already, but about Shelby's best birthday and how it was themed after a historical novel where the center, the, like the central idea of the whole thing is like, there's this like incredibly painful love triangle of like epically flawed people. 
And I wonder if, like, this is another example of Shelby, like, reading the wrong way into another book. I didn't think of that. That's such a good call. <laughs> right? Um, if you don't remember, in uh, back in, like, I think it's, like, it's whatever day the shelter building contest is in season one. Uh, Shelby's uh, reading a pa- or she's quoting a passage from her favorite book to Nora. And Nora's like, that's an incorrect interpretation <laughs> of it. <laughs> and so just, you know, I know that, like, Great Gatsby, like, also, like, definitely like in in movie depictions of it there's like a lot of like glitz and glamour and stuff like that there's a weird tension in here about like dave letting shelby have a party that's all about sort of i don't know like excess which great gatsby is in a lot of ways but i also do wonder if like her this being this book that she wanted her birthday like is she just like not seeing like the terrible tragedy and like really uh I don't know. There's a great examples of flawed characters in Great Gatsby, and if she's just interpreting it wrong. Yeah, I really like that because somebody said a theory at some point about how it might be her mom that was pushing Shelby into theater to like get her oh, yeah, exposed in... mm-hmm. to something. And he makes me wonder about like this Great Gatsby thing because you wouldn't really think it was like a Dave Goodkin approved book. Yeah. But maybe it was her mom being like, yo, here's a classic here. Or like I read Great Gatsby in school. So maybe it was a school book. But to really like go the full mile and have it as a themed birthday, interesting choice. It is an interesting choice. And I think there's a lot of like overlay themes in this episode around the romanticization of things. We see all of them. I'm going to talk about it more later, I think. But like we see a lot of them do it. And she romanticizing like the 20s. And it's a little bit more about Bab than anything else. But once again, then she's just ignoring kind of all of the other context of the story. And just being like, great parties. That's what Gatsby's about, right? Great parties. I'd like to take us over to talking a little bit about Rachel and sort of the moment that she has around the fire. Rachel has this sense, this whole episode of like the immense loss of Nora. And in that moment, she kind of lashes out a little bit about it and then sort of takes takes off. Shelby, as I mentioned, is the one who goes and sits with her. Takes this moment to tell Rachel a bit about Becca. Rachel then like really listens to Shelby's story and asks Shelby, you know, what did she do to get through that? And they start an interesting conversation about faith and they sort of end it with Shelby giving Rachel a prayer to help her work through her own grief. The Wilds is an interesting show because I think about, you know, how often do we actually openly talk about loss? A lot of the girls have gone through pretty significant losses whether it's dot and her dad shelby and becca nora and quinn there's like there's a lot of like multi-layered kind of loss that's going on but we don't see a lot of open conversations i might be wrong and you can correct me if i'm wrong but i think this is only the second one i think the first one was actually dot and shelby and now this is the second one with shelby and rachel I think, and I'm, I'm obviously I think I'm exempting a little bit in here, like Rachel's stuff with Nora. I'm thinking a little bit about things that people are bringing from their backstory into this space and the losses that happened pre-Island that they're talking about. And so it's interesting that it's Shelby in both of those spaces who's talking. She listened to Dot, but now she's sharing with Rachel. It's funny because like Rachel doesn't initially believe that Shelby knows what it's like to grieve someone, like on the same level that Rachel does. Once again, I think that like feeds into that sense about do people actually see some of the layered things that are going on with Shelby? I really like 
that parallel and I really like the parallel that you made to Quinn. Yeah. Because I think that's probably what Rachel is thinking about when she hears Shelby talk about Becca because she knows that Nora lost Quinn. And we don't grapple at all in Nora's backstory with how she coped with that. And it makes me wonder to what extent Rachel knew about that grief because of how she was a bit of a part of their demise or some part of their demise. I would think Nora would say it probably wasn't a huge part, but Quinn would say it was a significant part. So it's tough to be the decision maker on that. But I think it's a really important parallel because I think it places Rachel in a position to really, really listen to Shelby because it was a bit of a risk. Shelby talking about that and making that parallel. And you're right that Rachel doesn't quite believe her, but I think it reminds Rachel of Quinn and Nora and it gets her into the space to be really open and to really learn from Shelby's hopefully experience. Well, it's, it's always risky in those situations to tell a personal story totally. because it can come off as, you know, I know exactly what your pain feels like. Or centering yourself in someone yeah. else's grief, right? right? But it does work in this because I think the biggest thing that's going on with Rachel right now is isolation and she's feeling isolated, especially as someone who is a twin and who has never been been truly alone and now is truly alone and and is trying to deal with the fact that she's never going to get that back she's never going to get Nora back spoiler obviously Nora is alive so she will get it back but like not to Rachel in this moment and so she actually needs connection and so Shelby gives her that by saying like what happened to me is different but I think that there are elements that are the same there's a lot of the same sort of like guilt that exists in sort of both of them and that they feel that Nora passing away and Becca passing away is connected to them and that they had a role to play in that happening. Well, and earlier we talked about beach parallel scenes. And so I just want to call back to the Leah and Shelby beach parallel scene where after Leah talks about how all she cares about is love, Shelby says back to her, isn't that what we're all afraid of? That we won't be loved and that we'll be all alone. So I love that you drilled down into the concept of loneliness and now we see Shelby making it so that Rachel's not alone in a similar way to how Leah made sure Shelby wasn't alone too. Well, it's important to hear Shelby talk about Becca because that theme of isolation and understanding what isolation is also applies to Becca. That's what Shelby is sharing in that moment with Rachel that, you know, Shelby twisted kind of what happened and what ended up being the result of that is Becca was isolated. Nobody believed her. And she saw the danger of that isolation, obviously, in Becca taking her life. Shelby giving faith as a tool to Rachel is so beautiful. I think like a lot of the girls understand sort of like overwhelming loss, shame and guilt And Rachel in particular understands like that struggle of self-blame. And, you know, Shelby has said in this moment, I understand that too. But giving her something to move forward with, like something that she can use to help herself as she's walking this path is just beautiful. And I think there's this bigger thing that's happening in the wilds with this dichotomy between survive versus thrive. And there's like a flip that needs to happen with a lot of people. And so... 
a lot of them are in this survival mentality where it's once again that dot thing where it's one foot in front of the other just going through the motions but changing over to that thriving sense where they're building community where they're building relationships I think is really important and I think that might be why faith is such a huge theme this season because faith is like inherently tied to that that thriving piece because it's bigger than just like surviving because you have to it's thinking about larger concepts of like what are you living for what are you working for and what are the, like the beautiful things that you're making I like that you framed it as a tool because I think it's a nice mention to our last episode when we talked about how Fatten gave Martha a tool and again we're just seeing those relationships advance and moving that level of support from a listening ear onto like tangible strategies. Like sharing things. Yeah. And it's another example. And we talk about it all the time, but it's like right person, right place, right time. And it's something that in this episode, the boys really, really struggle with. And the girls seem to nail again, for the most part. And this scene actually brings us to this week's Field Note of the Week. Allie, what is our Field Note of the Week? So our field note of the week is number 201. Every year, Nora and Rachel would alternate in picking what their mom made for their birthday dinner. Rachel almost always picked spaghetti and meatballs growing up, so Nora did too because that was her sister's favorite. One of the reasons we picked this as our field note is I think it speaks to like that, that prevalence of Nora in Rachel's life. I talked a little bit about this earlier, but the sense of like, Nora always being there, but also sometimes not being there and how it's it's a weird space to kind of be in season two. But I think this really hammers home the ways that like Rachel and Nora are tied together in a way that can't really be broken even with quote unquote death. And so Rachel can't just move past this because Nora is such a big part of her day-to-day life. She's the person who's always been there for her. And there's also a piece in here that speaks to the way that Nora centered Rachel, like picking Rachel's favorite food and the way that like Nora was the person that gave Rachel so much care. And there's like two fold pieces of loss in here where, you know, Rachel's losing her sister, this person, but she's also losing this person who gave her that care, who believed in her and who worked for her. And so there's there's instability in there for Rachel around that as well, too. Yeah. And to me, this field note was just a stark reminder of Rachel's family. And I imagine what she's thinking about if and when she's ever reunited what she's going to have to tell her family. And it's interesting because she's still, with the comment she makes to Shelby, she's still very much on the trajectory of this isn't the place we want to be. And she talks a lot about that in season one, about how she's not interested in laying down roots, which I think was an episode title. And she still seems to have some sort of a desire to get back home. Anyways, I just like this field note because I think it's a reminder that the grief is just beginning for Rachel, but it hasn't even started for her parents. And at least in her mind, how much more work there is to do. And I think it's a really nice reinforcing field note with some of the comments that Rachel makes towards the end of her episode, when she talks about how she had it all wrong and that Nora was not casting a shadow over Rachel, but being her protector. And it's just another example of a moment when Rachel might not have seen that previously, that Nora was picking spaghetti and meatballs for her, but now she might. 
there's a simplicity in it too. Like if you think about the ways that the other girls were talking about sort of these extravagant birthday parties and, you know, Rachel, Rachel's field note is more about like missing that sort of like your mom cooking you your favorite meal for your birthday. There's like a simplicity in the day-to-dayness of it. And I think it really just kind of buries in that like we're having this discussion about birthdays and birthdays are like a like a one day a year thing, like a big special thing. But the contrast of it being like a meal at home with your family just really reminds you that like this struggle that Rachel's having is a day-to-day one and it's one that it's like a weight that she'll have to carry on a day-to-day basis and that's heartbreaking and it's it's hard to see and to feel and to understand what it will be like for Rachel to carry that weight. Well that extremely uplifting note (laughs) let's head over to talk about the boys island. So over on the boys island This is the second of two episodes that's really dedicated to the Jaguar. The motherfucking Jag. My apologies. (laughs) The motherfucking Jag. In this episode, it really focuses on the hunt and eventual successful killing of said Jag. But first, the boys spend some time preparing and devising a plot for how they will actually handle the threat. At the end, they really come together and talk about how they're going to kill a motherfucking Jag. And in a lot of respects, it's really the most united we've seen them so far. There's a nice parallel in here between the boys and the girls because it's two very different planning days. Once again, one is a celebration of life and one is a death that they are kind of working towards celebrating. The yes and is really interesting because I think it speaks to a larger way that Seth tries to take on leadership roles with the boys. He like does it in this way where he's like trying to like promote real collaboration, but he's still technically leading. And like yes and is like a a tool that he uses to do that. We see a lot of moments where he tries to like make other people come up with ideas that he's definitely like led them to. It's once it's just one of those weird things that's so different than Nora in a lot of ways. And so it's like a way that he centers himself as a leader, but in a way that he's trying to like make other people not think that that's what he's doing. I think the comment about how different it is from Nora is important. And I think we've talked about this before that it feels like he's more of the Jeanette in the group than the Nora in the group. And more than that, something I just find so interesting is that Roth knows that's his angle. And you'd assume that like some of the other guys know it's their angle too. And certainly we see that with Kieran and Seth later on, but I don't know why it works. They are struggling with the concept of leadership. And I think like ego comes into it a lot specifically with this group. There are a lot of battles between Kieran and Seth for, for leadership. There isn't really a clear leader between the two of them. It's constantly shifting. And Seth talks people down a lot in a way that he's like, he's doing it in a way to assert himself as the leader. And so it's it's one of the weaknesses I find with like the boys group, especially around survival, is the girls really quickly were like Dot is the leader. And like other people take on leadership roles, but like Dot was the leader. And you never really get that clear leader consistently for this group. What I think it goes back to some of the challenges we've talked about is that we had a really good understanding in season one about why each girl was chosen. 
And we also had these really important moments where Gretchen would talk about the girls, whether it was talking about Fatten to her research team and saying she's not some wilting flower and then Audrey saying, well, there's the dossiers and that's not accurate or the way that she identified with Leah in so many ways that really shared about how she knows those people. And you don't get that same sense here. And you felt it to some extent when she went in to interview Scotty. Like it felt like she almost didn't really know him. And I think that's what makes it really hard to really understand some of these leadership challenges because you don't map the boys in the way that you can map the girls. Certainly we can make parallels between the boys and the girls. And I think they really want you to like pick the obvious ones. And I think we've really tried our best in our analysis to pull out the less obvious connections. But I really wish we had more on the research side of things about why these boys were chosen to make some of these conversations easier. I agree. I think that a lot of the research piece, and we're going to talk about the experiment later, is really centered around like interviewing them in the bunker. We see a little bit less that like watching them other than those brief moments of Tom and Susan. And like they're a little bit more focused around uh, survival, around the jaguar, around those different pieces than they necessarily are on the boys' personalities and the ways that they're building community or not building community. So as we talked about, the group splits up. We'll first talk about Seth and Kieran, then we'll head over and talk about Josh and Roth, and then we'll end talking about Ivan, Bo, Scotty, and Henry. So first, Seth and Kieran. Seth and Kieran are on a mission to find some spears. In this moment, Seth tries to become buddies with Kieran, and Kieran really reinforces that he sees straight through him and he's not about the buddy-buddy approach. That's when we see Kieran shove Seth against a tree. And then Seth ends by telling the cat kidnapping story where he kidnapped his girlfriend's cat. There's some huge callbacks in this scene to Shelby and Tony, which I think like very early when people were watching fueled this sort of narrative that that Seth and Kieran were going to be like Shelby and Tony. It feels like the wood collecting scene. Like it really does feel like the wood collecting scene when Shelby has run off after the whole thing happened with her flipper and then Tony comes and finds her in the woods. There's something about the dynamic where they're sharing a little bit and kind of like peeling back some of the layers, but also are sort of like confronting these stereotypes about each other that just takes you back there. It also feels a little bit like that confrontation that they had at Hell Beach. Like that line specifically, like I see right through you is exactly like what was said back in that scenario and so there's a way that these two have been sort of like put in those similar positions and are are clashing in that sense and it's like an interesting like very deliberate parallel that the show writers made i didn't i didn't even pick up on the parallels the wood gathering scene i only picked up on the parallel to the it's more of a beach yeah it's It's more more of a vibe it's more of a vibe than it is like a direct textual reference did you say gay or did you say okay okay. I also just like, can we just talk about the quote that you just said? It's more of a vibe than a direct textual <laughs> reference. Yeah. That's like my it quote of the of season vibe. from Allie. <laughs> but then I think about what's different between these duos. And I think it's about power. Mm. So like Tony and Shelby very clearly have something going on between the two of them, which we know later on is like a lot of things, but Shelby had the opportunity to make a power move against Tony by talking about the branching incident. And she did. And that bothers Tony. And they talk about that on Hell Beach. 
Whereas the confrontation between Seth and Kieran feels so much about power. And whereas Tony and Shelby tie it to worth, Tony's like, I know you're not who you say you are. And Shelby's like, I'm not wasting anything more on you because you're not worth it. Seth and Kieran, like, they don't really have anything tangible to hang their hat on. For Kieran, it's just like a vibe. He's like, I just see straight through you. I think, like, it's important to remember about Hell Beach is that I think there is a little bit of an element of power in it because we're coming off of the shelter building contest. And so we're coming off in that moment where Tony was supposed to lead the team and then came back and then, I mean, it wasn't really Shelby leading. It was, I guess, Nora because they changed the whole shelter plan. But there is, like, a little bit of an element of power. But you're right in saying that, like, Seth and Kieran's thing is, is a bigger scope power. I think Kieran's clocking in this moment Seth's people pleasing and the way that like Seth is a chameleon I've said this before and like acts different with different people and there's something about that that Kieran inherently doesn't trust which is interesting right because it makes Kieran think that you know Seth might just be telling him what he wants to hear you can even see it in this moment because, you know, Seth often moves to attacking others when jokes and relationship building doesn't work in his sort of like quest to accumulate power in the group. And in this moment, we see him take another tactic where he kind of self-deprecates himself to show that he is kind of like dark and depth in that he tells that story about the cat to sort of like gain that sort of respect from Kieran. So he's once again trying like a different tactic. But like for me, I'm just like, why is Seth so determined to be friends with Kieran? And I don't think it's to make sure Kieran's okay. Like I do think that he thinks that if he's friends with Kieran, it is just like an accumulation of more power and influence in the group because Kieran is his biggest threat. See, I interpreted the story about the cat differently. I interpreted it as Seth knowing it was wrong. And so instead of trying to be buddy-buddy with Kieran, him saying, I'll fucking take your cat. Mm-hmm. So to me, that oh, was what he- took it as like a bit of like a, a power kind of, move. A power like watch out for me. Move. Yes. Kieran, I think, recovers in that moment, if my interpretation is accurate, by like validating it and talking about women and whatever. But that's how I interpreted it. When you say women and whatever, do you mean talking about women in derogatory ways? Uh, Yes. Yes. Okay, good. Yes. (laughs) Good, 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 good. Yes. Um, And about like bringing sand to the beach. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm really going to track out all of Kieran's like weird idioms. That are incorrect. That are incorrect. You're not supposed to bring sand to the beach. Another duo that we spend some time with is Josh and Roth. Now keep in mind, these are two characters who have some relationship with each other. They both attend the same school. This ends up being somewhat of a central theme of their conversation as they clean out the bunker. Josh's idolation of Seth is so next level. And like you really see the differences between Roth and Josh in this moment. And so for Josh, he's seeing like Roth as someone who has Seth attention and he wants that but you also see like the difference in their backgrounds you see the difference in their experiences at school uh josh talks about being a part of like the latinx club and like isn't recognizing like the privilege of being able to be in those spaces because we know roth is like very tired very like pushed anyways it's just like they're two people (laughs) who are so fundamentally different in a lot of ways it's interesting because you don't really see that necessarily that huge division in any of the girls 
right? Like, even if you think about someone like Leah and Fatten, who, you know, weren't really friends and seemed from different worlds, they have so much more in common than even Josh and Roth do. And I feel like while we ended this scene in, like, a good place where they're sort of, like, growing to this common understanding, they started an ocean apart. Yeah, and I think where they have that common ground is that both of them struggle with parental expectations Mm. and so josh has these real parental expectations of like who he is and how he should be relative to his parents and roth has a similar expectation about his duties that he needs to have to his family and it's almost like it's like a shelby and tony gap that they're trying to mend where again neither one of them can see each other right away because they just kind of stereotype each other's worlds. And I think that's the same for Josh and Roth. I'm really glad you brought up the piece about parents and how like that might be the connecting factor where different worlds, but same kind of parental weight because Josh tells like a story in this scene with like a lot of like levity (laughs) when he's talking about how he um, couldn't, like he was having trouble speaking when he was younger. So he didn't talk a lot and then got sent to a speech therapist and his dad said, maybe we never should have sent you to him because you talk too much. It's like one of those things that he tells it in this like light way, but like, It's actually like such an incredibly painful story. And it reminds me of Josh talking back in episode one about foundational wounds and Mm -hmm. like some of those wounds that like really hit you and you carry and like they change who you are going forward because this is another example of one of those for Josh. It's interesting to see him share that. And I think it's important to see like the sharing aspect happening with the boys. Yeah. Where did all the papers go? They burned them. <laughs> well, I actually, that's okay. I, I'll take that actually, because they're like emptying the bunker of the papers. And I was like, We're, we never see the fucking papers again. Where the fuck did the papers go? But you're right. Maybe they used them in the fire. I'll, I'll accept that as a, as a possible solution. But to be fair, it also looks like they like reviewed them as though they were like searching for... <laughs> Like, I don't know why they were, like, going into the folders being like, oh, I wonder if my tax slip's in here. Like, very clearly nothing is important in here. I don't know, like, why they What if it had a map to, like, to find to to an emergency call center or something? But they could have given them a line about that because it did look silly them flipping through the papers. Yeah, they just flipped through them aimlessly. (laughs) So outside of these two duos, we also see this quad of Ivan, Bo, Scotty, and Henry whose job, it seems, is to sharpen the spears. Here we see a confrontation happen between Scotty and Ivan. Essentially, it is that Scotty wants Ivan to not spend so much time on his one spear and instead work faster and make more spears. Unfortunately, it takes a homophobic turn and they share some words with each other, eventually having this conversation about not prancing around, manning up, and what a real man is. The discussion about gender roles is really interesting because the girls never had like a parallel to it. They never really talk about policing femininity in the same way. I mean, I guess they do a little bit like teasing Fatten for like all of her care products that she has in her suitcase but there is no kind of mirror that happens there so when they struggle with like gender and sexuality kind of exists solely in the boys group so there's elements of this scene that feel a little bit like what happened when they were all like when the girls were all eating the mussels except in this situation like ivan is defending himself and saying like what you said isn't okay 
but you don't see the same sort of like jump up from the group that you did with the girls. I'm gonna talk about it in just a second, but there are some ways that he others himself, but it's also this thing that he almost gets othered in in the group where when he calls out people for saying things that are wrong, whether or not they realize what they're saying is homophobic, like there are undertones, he constantly gets kind of put down for sort of defending himself in those moments. And it's rare to see somebody else stand up for him as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like everyone's a jerk here. Something I think something they also don't recognize is that as Ivan is tending to his spear, he's placing a lot of importance on the one object by adding some embellishments to it. And they do that in other areas. The girls do it as well. Like, for example, with Marcus. And when they embellish objects or, like, focus in on objects, to me, it's kind of like, maybe we should be, like, wondering why they're doing it as opposed to, like, making some sort of a judgment about it. Like, I don't really think it's, like, Ivan actually, like, quote, being extra as Scotty perceived it. And rather, it is, like, there's something else maybe going on there. So... I think this is an example of like, even though they're kind of united in this pursuit, maybe kind of like the girls beach scene, there's other things that might be going on. Well, both Ivan and Scotty are romanticizing this jaguar hunt in different ways. And they're not seeing the other way that they are. Like Ivan is creating this like, you know, like he's creating Excalibur. Like he's creating this like sword from legend. Um, He's like decorating it, making it beautiful, doing all this stuff. Like he's creating this thing that will be a part of this. And Scotty's over there too. And but he's using, I guess, a little bit more words because he's telling like the narrative of what they're going to do. And he's been like excited like a little kid this whole episode about like how fantastic this wonderful dream hunt is going to be that they're going on. And so like they're doing similar things, but they're not seeing the ways that what the other person is doing is similar. But Ivan also uses his intelligence to differentiate himself from the others quite a bit. Like we see this throughout the show. It started back in in episode one when he had his shirt with a bunch of famous writers on. He's like, if you don't know these people, then I don't care about you. And so instead of seeing Scotty as similar or looking for like similar values or character traits or any of those things, he sees him as inherently different from him. So the jaguar hunt scene initiates when they're all sitting around the fire. When they head towards the jaguar in a pit, it's really Kieran and Ivan that step up. Everyone else seems to fade away in the background. It's Kieran that really throws the axe and uses Ivan's spear to kill the jag. I think it's really important with the jaguar scene to think about death slash killing scenes with the girls. This, like the jaguar hunt is something that takes like a huge prevalence in the boys scene. Like it is, like it is a, it is a whole arc on its own. It takes across like two episodes specifically with the hunt, but even next episode is a little bit of a fallout for that. The act of killing something is handled very differently between the two islands. Obviously the most direct parallel that you have with the girl's island is the killing of the goat. But I think there's also continued parallels that happen even with Martha hunting throughout season two. And the way the boys approach the killing of the jaguar, there's a little bit more of a glorification of the killing of the animal than you ever see the girls do. Like if you think about Martha on the beach after she comes back and they've brought the goat and they're gutting it and cooking it and stuff, and just the immense weight 
and guilt that she feels. It's so very different than what we see with the boys where they're really celebrating. And I know that there's an element in here where the Jag was trying to kill them. I'm not unaware of that, but it's a very different vibe than what we see with the girls whenever they have to take a life or they have to destroy something. And we see that difference in the way that they celebrate it after. So it's another shirt off chanting scene again that's what they do when they're excited they chant and they take their shirts off yeah and so amidst all of the shirtless beer drinking we do see scotty and ivan move past their disagreement that they had earlier we also see roth really pushes seth as the one to be celebrated and he ends up making a speech the speech is like kind of nice in some ways but kind of rude in other ways And it culminates in this concept of we were strangers and we came together, but also Kieran pantses Seth. That moment when Scotty and Ivan are talking and Scotty has that beautiful point of self-reflection where he, you know, sees the way that he needs to relate to Ivan and he takes accountability is such a great moment. And one of the few of those moments that exists for the boys, we see an apology. We see someone genuinely taking accountability for what they're saying. And also we see that apology being accepted. And in contrast to all of the ways that Ivan and Scotty saw each other as different earlier on, we saw them connect and see the ways that they were similar and also kind of compromise and their understandings of who the other person was. And I just think like it should be called out because it's so beautiful. Well, and it's such an important moment to both of their character arcs. We haven't learned a lot about Ivan so far, but for Scotty's arc, he's so much about it's me and Bo versus the world. So to for him to recognize that he caused harm and that even though it's us versus them, that he still caused harm to someone else, even though that they might still be a part of the us, the them part of it, that he still needs to take accountability and broaden his understanding of like us now includes more than just Bo, I think is really, really beautiful. When Seth goes to make his speech, this is another example of like someone kind of pushing Seth into the light, but then Seth really relishing being in that space. It's his like thing with power and control though. It like, he shouldn't be kind of like peacocking in this space, but he can't help it. And then he like puts on this persona and it's probably in some part tied to his comedy training, but he refers to it as a quick five and he just turns into this persona where he like can't help like using comedy to like also say what he really feels, including like undermining Kieran again and taking that opportunity to do so while also taking the opportunity to boost Roth up too. Yeah, and he he like says a bunch of stuff in here. Like he talks about like certain people being nothing special. Like the girls would never say that. It's like a weird thing. And that thing about him putting Kieran down again, I'm just like, does he think that that's how he's going to build with Kieran? Because Kieran, as we've learned throughout this season so far, is not quick to take a joke. He does not take a joke well. I feel like too, like Seth is trying to assess the level of power that he has in the group. Like, will everybody kind of laugh at this? Like, will they sort of like take these jokes and like, I don't know. It's uh, feels like he's testing the waters a little bit. Which really, like, un- like it really emphasizes the moment when it doesn't. Like, not everyone follows because then Kieran kind of lashes back at Seth when he pantses him, right? And so he's taking this moment of power that, like, Seth has 
and then it's just completely like undermining. I love the theory that he's using it as a diagnostic of power. I love that. I love that. I love that. And then it's totally taken from him when everyone laughs harder when Kieran pantses him, which is like a very elementary thing to do in contrast to like Seth trying to make somewhat specific contextual jokes versus this very juvenile display of like embarrassment and maybe a little bit of power, but also just like Kieran doing Kieran stuff too. Well, it is a direct example of a transition of power that is what is happening like Seth has power in that moment he's everyone's listening to him he's talking and then when Kieran does that he takes power back from Seth and when we think about Gretchen talking about peaceful transitions of power this is like an example of a not peaceful transition of power and it, it like has like very extreme ramifications Seth in this moment like when he's making jokes he's controlling the laughter there's an element of control in there. It's all controlled laughter that he's guiding, that he's sort of leading versus like when Kieran pantses him, he's being laughed at. And so seeing everybody laugh, including Roth, who he thinks that he has this sort of special relationship with, really kind of like fucks with him. And so after the pantsing incident, we see Seth remove himself from the group. Josh seeks him out, likely in part because he holds him to such a high standard and he probably does genuinely want to check in on him. Josh tries to bond with Seth about having shared experiences, but it doesn't seem to be the right message working for Seth. And we see Seth's emotions and outward expression go really dark. Well, when you're thinking about what sets Seth off in those moments, like when he's talking with Josh, he's already upset. He already feels kind of like undermined and demeaned. You really see in this moment all of the ways that Seth looks down on Josh. And he sees Josh as this person who is so far beneath him. For Seth, like hearing Josh compare the two of them makes him feel like he is small and powerless. We saw this already happen a little bit with Seth earlier this season when um, he tried to drown Henry. And it was right before that that Henry had told him that his mother didn't even love him and it, like his stepmother and his mother left him. And like once again, that sort of like reiteration of like him being this small thing. But I think the most important piece like for me to take from that scene on the ridge is that it is the act of Josh comparing himself to Seth of saying, I'm like you, I understand Josh is just trying to be relational. But because Seth thinks so little of Josh, that is what makes him feel small and what makes him feel powerless and which directly kind of contributes to what happens afterwards. And it's just so shit because Josh is trying to be relational in the way that Seth is trying to be relational. And so he tries to kind of use a similar tactics and it just like wasn't the right person and it wasn't the right. Josh was the wrong, yeah. Yeah. And that's it though. And we've talked about Josh was the wrong person. It's weird that Roth didn't go to see him considering like what they had built, but Josh was like just, Josh was the wrong person for Seth to talk to in that moment. Anyways, uh, I guess what happens next is where we're going to. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We see Josh head back and go to bed as he talks to Seth about. And Seth follows him and proceeds to pin him down and masturbate over him while saying, 
I'm nothing like you. Yeah. And it is so graphic. It is like a, like, it is probably the most graphic thing from my perspective that like the show has depicted to date. Like, just like the act of like, it's just like the way it's like filmed, like with everyone else kind of like there, but they're all separate. And then like, just like Seth standing over Josh and pushing him down. It's just like this act of like degradation and exacting power over him. And just like that repeated, like, do you think I'm anything like you? It's just, um, just like a really fucking terrible moment. And it's kind of like a... Yeah, and I think what you were talking about earlier about how it's all linked to Seth's own insecurity, when, what he says really reinforces that. So the repeating of I'm nothing like you. I'm nothing like you is very different than you're nothing like me. Mm-hmm. You're nothing like me is a very narcissistic kind of thing to say. I'm nothing like you is a very insecure thing to say. So I think the way that you positioned it is correct. I just think that like... If we can critique the show again, but very directly here, a really hard part for me about this season is the things that get care and the things that don't get care and the things that like we see and the things that we don't see and the intersections between what we see and gets care, what we don't see and gets care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is something we didn't need to see. And more than that, like there's so much that of the girl's island that wasn't given care that was like also really really triggering that was like seen or maybe not seen and lastly like if the real arc of this was about gretchen's choice in a confederate there are so many other things that they could have done or opted for that wasn't this that still would have been really character specific I just don't like the, like, I just, I think it's such a teen trope to have, like, gratuitous sexual assault depicted, and I know it's a real part of, like, being young, but I don't think it needed to be graphic, and or, if it was just a plot tool, which it seemingly is, then pick something better and be more careful. Well, if the goal was to show the ways that, like, Seth was flawed, we already had that starting with, like, the attempted drowning of henry absolutely and i think that there were other ways to show it like i feel like they want to talk about the way that men in particular deal with concepts of sexual assault and i don't know if they did it though you and i have also talked about too some of the things that happened this season where they do stuff at the end of an episode as yes. almost like a cliffhanger. like a cliffhanger but like some of these things whether it's leah's suicide attempt or it's the sexual assault are not cliffhangers absolutely and should not be used as cliffhangers and like If you want a good cliffhanger, like have it be the jaguar attacking the camp. That wasn't even a cliffhanger. They started an episode with that. Have that be the cliffhanger. Don't have these moments that are full of triggers, that are full of harm, that are full of hurt happen at the end of these episodes so that you can jump ahead two days or to the next day and not have to directly deal with the immediate ramifications of what happened. Yeah, I think you're bang on. Like, these things that require care shouldn't be what we end the episode on under the guise of, like, ooh, watch the next one. Which, again, as you just said, we're just going to flash forward a few days, so we're not actually going to deal with it. I think it's really important what you said about how maybe they wanted to talk about how the male experience of sexual assault and how they process emotions is really different. That's a great moral of the story. This isn't the show for it. Mm -hmm. We were sold this show about how it's a female-centered narrative talking about the implication of female stories 
this like male narrative about how male deals, men deal with sexual assault differently, while true and valid and important to talk about, this isn't the show. Because by and large, if the purpose is to make the girls front and center, and we're supposed to use these male characters as foils to talk about the girls' experience and make some meaning of the full experiment, this didn't need to be a part of it. We clearly have some feelings yeah. about this scene. But and I think about I imagine our, like, folks that are listening to this or, or who have stuck around yeah. this part of this discussion, I'm sure do as well. And I hope this is validating for folks. And if you have any other thoughts, like, we're all years too. Yeah, and I just I just think that there were different things that they could have done. Like I think like I said, like they could have had Seth get so angry that like he tried to push uh, Josh off a cliff or something, but it didn't happen. And then you still could deal with Josh saying that it happened and and Seth saying that it didn't and them having to pick sides. You know what I mean? Like you still could have done all the same plot stuff that comes in the episodes that follow without this happening. Well, the parallel is really important that you made to Leah because we talked about Leah's suicide attempt at the, in the earlier episode. I think it was episode one, wasn't it? Episode two? It happens at the end of episode one. And I think we talked about it in episode two. Okay. And, and I think like we all, we all, you and me kind of said, if we wanted to build this case for Leah's mental health, we already had enough to kind of go on without the direct kind of suicide attempt needed. And I do, like, I really do stand by the point that, like, putting it at the end of the episode feels irresponsible. It happens again later this season, and we're going to talk about it with Martha, um, where similarly, like, something happens that is very violent and is very, can cause a lot of harm. And it's dealt with as, like as a cliffhanger, as like a like amp up people's interest type of tool. And the wilds, generally speaking, like previously had dealt with these issues with care and had worked with these pieces with care. And like the lack of care that's being given is like pretty fucking stark. I understand showing things that are graphic when there's a purpose, but I just like don't understand what the purpose of this was. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's all we have to say about that, I think. Yeah, like, I you're think. not going to get a deep level analysis of that from us. You're just going to get some real emotional reactions. But that's what we got. That's what we got. You want to talk about the experiment, though? Yeah, sure. Pop over spend some time with Leah and Rolf. Shifting over to the experiment, there are scenes from the experiment kind of interspersed, as usual, throughout the episode. We start off with Leah asking Dan when she can stop trying to interview Rolf. And Dan sort of says, you know, there's a gap that they need to understand and that she needs to keep going. He gives her transcripts of quote unquote calls from Jeff and promises to let her call him uh, if she succeeds in getting this information from Rolf. Leah, who is not a super spy, as she accused Shelby of being in season one, uh, goes to see Roth to continue kind of interviewing him and she pushes him to tell her more. He sort of talks her through the Jag killing day, which we've already talked through this episode. Roth almost tells Leah about what happened between Seth and Josh, but at the last moment, Leah has a little bit of a change of heart or a little bit of a conscious moment and stops him. Uh, we see Gretchen, Dean and Dan very angry, but they do not go after Leah. Yeah, a couple of things around the Dan and Leah conversation. I find it interesting that Daniel continues to be the Leah connection. It's probably reinforced by Gretchen really feeling like he got so much out of her. 
But what I find really fascinating about this scene in particular is that they're in Dan's territory. It's not in Leah's room. And there's a bit of a power shift. Like while Leah's sitting down and Dan is kind of standing, might be a little bit over her, she is negotiating. And there's definitely a difference in power versus like them having this conversation in her room, which we saw a very different power dynamic between them in season one. The other piece I just want to say is that when they go through the Jeffrey Glanis phone transcripts, I'm not sure if they're real. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. But I do find it fascinating that when you read them, they also sound like him. Like when you look at them, when you take a pause, if you're like us, you take a pause and then you run really close to the TV and like stand close to it and look at it and see if you can make it out. Um, That's what we do here. They like sound like him. So they use a lot of filler words, for example. And the way that he talks about things is like very Jeff-esque. Yeah, I think... It's funny in the situation because like Leah feels like she's blindly trying to find something <laughs> like she does, she doesn't know. They're just like, oh, there's something on day 15 that we don't know about. And it's like this funny parallel to like how she must have felt on the island where she's like something's wrong and she's trying to figure out what it is. Whereas like she's like there's something that like the boys aren't telling and she's trying to figure out what it is with Roth. Um it's probably just feels like a like a weird like oh I'm back in the same place kind of thing for her. Uh, the call logs, I do not think that the call logs are real. I think uh, later on in this season when Leah gets her phone and she opens it and she goes to the last text with Jeffrey and there's no other message other than never reach me again. I think like that solidifies for her that like like Jeff would text her like there would be text messages. That's a good point. Yeah. And so I think like for her too, like that like validates that these aren't real. Uh, it's a real tricky thing. And I think that's what's fascinating about it is someone would have had to make them like someone sat down like Tom Susan. or Susan, probably Tom, honestly, sat down and made call logs that for Jeffrey to call Leah's parents her phone, her school counselor, her school. It's also like a weird lie to lean into because we know how afraid Jeffrey was about someone finding out about him and Leah. So there's no fucking way he's calling the school to check up on someone like 12 years his senior to see if she's not his junior, not his senior, to see if she's okay. Like, but yeah, someone made it and it's it's a fucking snake move. Something that you've just said has made me think about something and I don't know if it's a real shift in what they're trying to do in the experiment or if it's sloppy writing. So bear with me as I lay this out. But when Dan and Leah talk in episode six, Dan, when reflecting upon it to Gretchen, talks about how he wants Leah to feel guilty. These fake call logs, if Leah believes them, which I think Dan thinks that Leah does, and then Leah goes back to that world and finds out that they're not real, that emotion that she will feel, it's not going to be guilt. Yeah. It's going to be anger and frustration. And also like knowing Leah, it's going to probably surpass whatever feelings of guilt that she may or may not possess. I don't know if that's a shift because they're so concerned about day 15 that it no longer matters that Leah needs to feel guilty. Or if it's just maybe like they forgot about that base. I mean, it could be bad writing, but I think what's important, like what's an important difference between that scene and this scene is that Leah has confirmed that there is an experiment, you know, (laughs) your your little face. A little self-satisfied smug face. Mm. Ah, yes. Yes. 
uh, Leah has confirmed that there is an experiment. So like it, it's all good, well and good to make her feel guilty about calling Jeff instead of calling 911 or not telling the girls about the phone that she found when it actually could have made a difference. But there isn't really a point in making her feel guilty when she knows that that phone call probably wouldn't have done anything because they had placed her on this island. And so I do think it might be a shift in the experiment. And actually, something Gretchen says, I think, reinforces that. The way that she talks about Leah in this scene is very reminiscent of how she talks about Lynn. Hmm. So she says something along the lines of, like, I hate when promising people fail me. And it's so similar to how she talks about Lynn. She says she was promising and I had a lot of respect for her. But also, I'm dealing with, like, the grief that she kind of let me down a bit. And it's such a very similarly crafted way of communicating about the other person. No, you're right. Like she says, um, it's a bitter pill when they disappoint you. Oh, thank you for the direct quote. You're welcome. Much obliged. And it, it goes into like all of the pill. Pill? Yeah, I underlined had. pill when yeah. I wrote it down, but it's just not on the right page. That Gretchen had in like season one with the way that, you know, she's talked about pills before. She crushes her pills, so she doesn't even take her pills the right way. She doesn't <laughs> like, even swallow pills. She doesn't even swallow pills. Um, but I think that that pickup about the way that she's talking about Leah is similar to how she talks about Lynn is important. Because we've always felt that Leah is different to Gretchen. And Gretchen wants something different different from leah than she maybe wants from the other girls leah acting as she comes into rob's room when she like <laughs> sorry. she closes the door she, she like closes the door and then puts her ear to it like someone's following her it's like one of those things where like like we talked earlier about like what a bad liar she is and it's like in these weird situational moments where she's like a terrible liar but we know she's like scamming gretchen but also just so funny and just thinking about Leah and Roth's interaction, it does seem like they're building a sense of like camaraderie and trust. So this is the second episode where I feel like their conversation has really formed the narrative arc. I think episode two with Roth's episode was the other one, whereas last one was really narrated by Scotty. The only thing I'm confused by is like, there's like a weird vibe between the two of them yeah there's like, like a knee touchy vibe camera angle hug yeah, thing yeah and it's i don't understand it from any perspective i don't know if we're supposed to think that like leah's like trying to build a relationship with roth because touching knees it's kind of like reminiscent when she touched knees with jeff when they were sitting drinking their doritos yeah, I just find it counterintuitive because it's opposite of what the Ben Folds scene is of if they think you're a lovesick child, then let them believe it. And it is opposite of like Jeffrey Galanis's messages coming in earlier to like make it feel like they have chemistry. And so I don't know if it's like uh, playing for the experiment, maybe Dan said something, or if it's like Leah thinking that's how she can bond with them and that she's like okay with taking that risk yeah i don't know it's confusing it's confusing i don't don't like it i don't like it i don't want to deal with it i just (laughs) wanted to call out the vibe i think the other important thing that happens in this scene is we learn roth's favorite flavor of doritos and so and we already knew that leah liked the orange one and roth shares that the green bottle is his favorite this is important to leah Because what this signifies to Leah is the way that they've done pre-research on each person. Because if you remember when she does her first interview, episode one, season one, 
they have her favorite flavor there. And she thinks it's a bit of a coincidence. But then hearing Rolf talk about them bringing his flavor there takes it from being a coincidence to being like background research. And I think in particular, it like validates that like they can do anything. And it really like maybe shows her the scope of like Gretchen's power. It's Not My Favorite Flavor was our runner-up episode title. Mm-hmm. It's also a reference to The Great Gatsby. Is it? Well, Roth talks about the green flash of the bottles and the green light of the bottles because he stacks the green ones in his window. It's, it's a double reference. So number one, it's a reference to Daisy's green light and The Great Gatsby. It's also and a reference to Dot's The Flash. The Flash at Sunset. The green, <laughs> your face right <laughs> you're so smart but yeah it's it's like a so yeah it's it's a it's a funny like great gatsby time but also does tie back to dot as well too the last bit around like the leah and roth piece is i loved that leah didn't make roth tell because you can tell in this moment that she knows that there's a reason that he doesn't want to tell and she doesn't want him to have to break someone's trust And I think it like goes back to like all of the ways that the girls maybe held her trust through the seasons. And like, she doesn't want to put him in that situation once she understands how serious it is. And so in this sense, she's holding like that Roth has like this commitment to other people in his group that she would understand based on her own connection to the girls in her group. I think that's a beautiful thing to end on. And an excellent transition. Well, maybe not an excellent transition. An okay transition. A decent transition to Susan's Corner. Woo! All right. So Susan's Corner. Susan's Corner is a space where we take a look at where the boys island is versus the girls island at specific set points where we can align them based on days. So we're trying to see uh, which group, what each group has done, which group is doing better and kind of have a little bit of an understanding um, as we Susan our way or we do some Susaning. I don't know. I really want it to be a verb um, through our analysis of the two groups. The last one that we did was on day 12. So now we're looking at day 15 in this episode. And so let's think a little bit first about what the girls had done by this point. So in addition to everything that they had previously done, they've also dealt with a total destruction of their camp. They regathered supplies from their camp and found some more. They decided to move campsites to a safer location, Goldcliff Beach. Um, they had a bit of a group division threat that emerged between Leah and Shelby when Leah was accusing Shelby of being a slumber party spy. There was a lot of apologies that came out of this. So we saw them do a little bit of like having relationships break and then working to rebuild to them. We saw a transition of power happen um, when Dot decided she was done, told Rachel that she could be in control, and then that blew up a little bit. So it was not quite a peaceful transition of power. We also saw them lose a lot of faith that they would be rescued with Dot's speech about how they probably weren't involved in the media anymore. On the boy side... They've done much better by this point. So there's there's a little bit more stuff that they got going on. They've now built a shelter. Um, they dealt with a total camp destruction by the Jaguar, though, in this situation, similar to the girls. They've encountered an apex predator. They're starting to build community a little bit, um, but there's still a lot of concepts of personal ownership and individualism that exist in their group. We've seen them come together to protect one of their own when Bo was struggling to get up the cliff 
Uh, we've seen them start to make a little bit of like collaborative decision making, um, especially around what they're going to do with the Jaguar. There's some alternative relationships that are being developed, i.e. Ivan and Josh or Roth and Seth. So outside of their original pair and Ivan and Scotty this episode. We see signs of everyone working together to survive. We see a little bit of secret sharing or relationship building that's going on as well too. Some things that are kind of like not quite on screen but are there is they've started keeping two fires. So they have their big bonfire fire and then a separate fire. I assume that this is a part in part to make sure that the fire never goes out. Um, we also see that after the sort of destruction, this happens off camera, so not quite see, they did rebuild their shelter and obviously uh they had a violent encounter at the end of this episode yeah and the two fires is really important it's something that i was confused by it because seth you see him at a second fire but it seems like all the boys are at the other fire so i think that's a really important pull and it makes me wonder about because the experiments are staggered and the suspicion that was raised with the number of lighters that emerged on the girls' island, if there was some sort of direction about fire preservation given to Seth to make sure that they were able to push through it because there might not be a Jeanette's backpack or a Dot who had a lighter in the first place on the island. So the importance of having two fires. So I really like that pickup. I think like my overall kind of feelings for Susan's Corner is we are seeing the boys catch up a little bit with the girls. I mean, they're not nearly as far along as the girls were in sense of like building community, but we are seeing them start to take some small steps towards that. I think they're still at this point in time, not really like other than this jaguar thing, like hunting. They also still haven't found water at this stage, which I think is a very important distinction. And so they're not using the island for resources in the way that the girls have at this point. I think it's a really interesting thing that, you know, when, when both camps are destroyed, the boys hunt the jaguar, the girls move their camp. So it's two totally different approaches to a threat, whether that threat is the tide or whether that threat is an apex predator. I think that there's something interesting in that because we talked a lot last season about how annoying it was that the girls never went to the woods and they just continued to stay on the beach. Um, but the boys are doing it too. So they're still clinging to that sort of first place that they were. So let's head into our overall thoughts and reflections on the episode. Allie, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I can start us off. I have a lot of trouble with this episode. <laughs> For a lot of reasons, like I think weirdly it might be my least favorite of season two. And a lot of that is to do with like the stuff that happens with Seth. I also in some ways feel like the jaguar hunt maybe took a bit longer than it necessarily needed to. Um, and so I struggle a little bit with that sometimes. But it's a hard episode because I feel like it's so overshadowed with that moment with Seth that like I almost... It's funny when we when we just talk about the girls because I'm like, yeah, there's so much like light and happiness and they plan dot this birthday party and stuff. But then I'm also kind of like sitting over here like, yeah, but all of that just I just kind of like lose it because of sort of like the the violence of what happens with Seth and Josh. So I struggle a lot with this episode. I think uh, there's a surface level element to some of the things that we handle in this episode that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with too. But 
there are a lot of moments of levity, which is really nice. And I do think that the scene with Rachel and Shelby is one of my favorites this season because I think it's so rare and we've always wanted to hear Shelby talk a bit about Becca and about what the aftermath of Becca felt like to her. And I think that's so important for her character. And so just these these like little spikes in my understanding of the episode with pieces that I really loved, but they're sort of like separated by these real fucking deep valleys of like stuff that I wasn't crazy about. I think the challenge for me this episode is that all this shit with Seth is contrasted with Dot. Dot has really been shortchanged this whole season as a character. I think it was last episode or two episodes ago where like we don't even see her. And even when she's dealing with her father's grief later in this episode, we get an extremely well-acted scene by Shannon Barry. Don't get me wrong, but it's like 25 seconds. When we get to that episode, I'm going to time it. Mm-hmm. Because... I don't she, even think it's 25 yeah, seconds. Yeah, she crushes it. But like, it's so brief and Dot deserves the world and she deserves this party. Don't get me wrong. But I just don't like the way that all of this was funneled into this episode and is contrasted with all the shit that is what happens on the island with the boys. The challenge for me is that, as you talked about, there are so many parallels that exist. They're the two most similar days to each other in so many respects that we see. But the connection that's not made is like, why did these two ep- like these two days kind of need to be together in terms of those themes? I think the parallel could be made about this episode honoring Dot and her leadership with like Seth's downfall, maybe as a leader. But I just wish that like, again, the way that they talked about Seth and the way that he fell was not this. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's such a disservice to Dot and the girls and the arc of the girls and the whole show, to be completely honest, that these two things were mashed together in this way for no like good reason to some extent because like they're days that are also really far apart too in the timeline of things so i think that's all i really have to say about it like i didn't like the episode there are some redeeming qualities of it but i didn't like it i think it's interesting about season two that there are some real low points in a way that i never really found that there were in season one Season one, like if you asked me to rank my favorite episodes, I would probably have like a top three or four and then everything else would be at number five, all tied for fifth place or something like that. Um, So like there are episodes that I like more than others, but there weren't episodes that I specifically did not like. That is not the case for season two. Um, And I do think, but I think that this episode probably stands out as the one that I have like the strongest feelings about. And I do think that that's, a shared sentiment across quite a few people. So um, if you liked this episode or love this episode, like there were like a lot of like highlights. Um, Just for me, I think I struggle a little bit with some of the lower points. But should we do quote of the week? Let's do it. Allie, I'm wondering if you'd like to start with quote of the week this week. I would like to start with quote of the week. My quote comes from Rachel and it is just maybe like, don't get so poetic about this island. Rachel says it for context to Shelby when they have that little bit of an altercation and when Shelby's talking about how wonderful the birthday party is going to be. What I like about it is number one, I think there's something really poignant about the idea of like romanticizing, I guess, but also like idealizing this experience on the island that Rachel is really calling out. 
when she says, you know, don't get so poetic about it. I think it's a trap that even we fall into as viewers sometimes where we're watching it and, you know, we were like, this group is so great and so happy these girls are all together. Like, look at all these light moments. But also, like, they are in a very dangerous place and there's a lot of darkness around them and, like, people have died and, like, it's a serious situation. And so I think calling it out like that is really important. I think she calls Shelby out in that moment in a really real way, but also, like, calls us out in a really weird, in a really real way. And I just... I like that. And I also like Rachel being true in that she can help support these like moments of beauty on the island, but is also super realistic about the challenges that exist on the island. No, I think that's really important. And a shout out to Gus too, who helped her thinking about this back in season one when they talked about how the island is a really dangerous place and how, especially in the case of Leah, like the girls shouldn't feel safe here, but do feel safer here because like being a teenage girl sucks. And so I think this is an important reminder about the dangers of the island. Rachel, what's your favorite quote of the episode? Well, honorable mention to something that Scotty says. I ultimately didn't pick it because I didn't pick the context that I was in. But his quote, I like a big breakfast. I just feel invincible after I've eaten a big breakfast. But my actual quote of the week is from Tony. And it occurs in the flower crown making scene. And she says, we figure Dot's fucking classic. So we kept it simple, earthy. And I just, all I really have to say about this is that Dot is fucking classic. Yeah, she is. And I think it's really important to honor her with a crown, but not in an antler queen type of way, <laughs> a la Yellow Jackets. And I just think this is a, a really lovely scene. And even though they didn't quite get Shelby's style right, I think Dot would have appreciated either crown and seen the value and beauty in both depictions of the crown because that's what Dot sees in all the girls. She sees the best things in people regardless of the crown and Dot is fucking classic and I wish this episode was a better homage to her and wasn't all mixed up with all this bullshit. That was not the way that I thought you were taking this but I love it. So as always, the last thing we do every episode is... Honor someone with the prestigious title of Deserted Island Partner of the Week. Allie, can you remind me of the criteria? All right. Criteria for Deserted Island Partner of the Week is first and foremost, who would we want to be stranded with on a deserted island? Other criteria we look at is who kept everyone alive? Who kept everyone sane? Who was the island's MVP? And who best embodied Destiny's Child Survivor? Three, Three two, one. Shelby. Rachel. Ooh. Do you want to tell me why you think Shelby is so deserving? <laughs> the way you said that. I'm not going to take this line down. So proceed. Give me your most persuasive language. All right. Okay. Listen here. This is why Shelby deserves to be deserted island partner of the week. Number one, Shelby was solely responsible for pulling this party together. There's a reason why Dot comes on the beach and she says, I know you put this together. Fatten would have for sure had the bottle of champagne. Maybe there would have been a couple of things hung up. But Shelby is the person who has the ability to motivate people. She was able to give out tasks. And she honestly made sure that that party was fucking awesome. And she put everything she had into doing that. And I think like that is clearly evidenced by the fact that Dot knew it was her right from the start. 
even though Fatten was the person that she told that it was her birthday. Number two, I know Shelby came at this with way too much fucking intensity and, and a little, she pushed a bit hard, but when the fuck does Shelby also not do that? And I think like we value intensity sometimes and some other times we don't and we should just value it straight across. Number three, Shelby was the person who went and sat with Rachel. She was the person who, you know, opened up about some of the trauma that she had faced and some of the pain that she had gone through. And honestly, she helped rebuild Rachel in that moment and helped give her something. Like the sharing of her faith is something that Rachel will come back to Shelby for. And while I know that this is all sort of predicated on Shelby's guilt about this boat, Honestly, girls just making it through. And so if I was fucking stuck on a deserted island, I would want somebody who was, number one, going to keep my spirits up and help plan super cool parties. Number two, who was going to sit with me and care for me when I'm going through stuff and help me through it. And number three, would just fucking persevere no matter what. And that is why Shelby is my deserted island partner of the week. Well... We are going to use similar arguments because you just had this impassioned speech about how you value intensity and no one values it more than Rachel Reed. It could also be argued that all of the cool parts of this party that you so referred to, all of which were actually created by Rachel. What are you speaking about when you say cool parts? That fucking cake? Legend. That was just Rachel. The limbo? Just Rachel, also a legend. Rachel made Shelby's life easier. Shelby barely project managed that. You don't need to project manage someone like Rachel because she's a damn achiever and she was gonna do amazing things anyway. Yes, she was cared for by Shelby, but she demonstrated that care back to Dot, which is so important. And this episode is about Dot and we wanna honor her. She was our deserted partner of the season for season one, and that means something. And last and certainly not least, Rachel reminded Shelby and the rest of the girls, by extension, of the dangers of the island, which was something really important needed don't, at that don't, time. Don't weaponize my quote of don't the week back at me. Don't weaponize my things back at me. So that is why Rachel is my deserted island partner of the week. You know what? I'm all for it. I No, I'm not all for Rachel being deserted island partner of the week. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I win. <laughs> no. I, like, I'm all for the fact that, like, Rachel was the one who decorated the island and who set up that stuff. But, like, Rachel wasn't the one who was in charge of making sure that, like, Dot didn't come across it. Rachel wasn't not like, the one. It's not like Shelby found the stuff. Rachel found it, too, if we're being Yeah, technical. but your, your whole fucking argument about how Shelby. <laughs> your whole argument about Shelby barely project managing shit. Shelby's the one who put Fatten and Leah on that. How'd they do? Shelby's probably the one who told Rachel to go set up the beach and gave her all the party supplies. Rachel was going to do it anyway. She's on a mission. She's <laughs> Shelby, making her own task. Shelby's fucking performance. Shelby's, last season, no, Shelby's the one who tasked Martha and Tony with making the crown and oh, then had them improve it. Shelby's probably the one who picked all the fucking games that they were going to play. Not Limbo. And Shelby's Rachel. the one who helped Rachel keep it together when Rachel was falling apart. And don't you want someone to keep you together when you're falling apart? No. <laughs> so those were some really passionate arguments. I heard a rumor that I've conceded one more time than you. I will say I did note Shelby down as a potential deserted island partner of the week. I do really appreciate everything that Shelby brought to this. And really, some could argue that she employed the right person, i.e. Rachel, in the role that 
she needed to be in, and she did at least validate that Rachel was making her life easier. I can't concede that, like, if there was going to be a party on the island, I probably would want Shelby to plan it. And since this episode is about honoring Dot, I want to honor Shelby's role in it. And more than that, giving Rachel the tool of faith is really important, too. There was like 90 caveats in that where it was like... <laughs> well, I do feel really strongly. Like, I feel like I did argue my case, but I also think that like I can concede and like I do see your points you're making and I appreciate your passionate argument. Um, my choice is still right. <laughs> but maybe like Shelby knew that my choice was right. And maybe that's a power in itself. It's a very meta approach. Hmm. So I guess, Shelby Goodkind, you are Deserted Island Partner of the Week. Season 2, Episode 4. It's a narrow victory, though. Congrats, girl. Honestly, my voice is sore from yelling at you, so my apologies. (laughs) I also played baseball earlier today, which I also did a lot of yelling at. So I feel like my voice is pretty well shot. So I think it's about time to take us out. Take us out, Allie. All right, everyone. That is it. The end of season two, episode four. Thank you for joining us. We hope you had an okay time. Um, We had a lovely time chatting with you all. Our social media handles are in the episode description. So feel free to reach out if you want to theorize, talk about anything. We love hearing from listeners. But otherwise, we will see you in two weeks for season two, episode five. And we are very excited about it. And I'm going to win Deserted Island Partner of the Week next week. Okay, the person, it's not you. The person who is supposed- It's me, it's Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) The person who should win is one of the girls on the island. You and I are not a part of this. My identified Deserted Island Partner of the Week. Yeah, but- Will be Victoria. We're going to end this now. Hope you all have a lovely week. Avoid some jaguars. Throw some killer parties. Don't hurt yourself doing the limbo. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.